Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. Today, we are continuing our sermon series titled New, which is taking us through the book of Ephesians. Renus will be looking at the text Ephesians 2 and will be focusing on the theme of the new gift. Renus looks at some of the divisions the church Paul was writing to is facing, as well as some of the divisions our culture has and is currently facing. Yet we come to see that the things that define people and divide people in the culture are irrelevant in the church, for we have been given a new identity in Christ. So I'm going to leap into this series on Ephesians. Uh, Caleb has given you the last two weeks of introduction uh, in chapter one. I'm going to jump into chapter two. And I got to begin with a confession. I promised my wife it wouldn't be an apology. So it's not an apology. It's a confession. (laughs) A little different. Um, Here's the confession is that I've wrestled with this text all week. Not so much the text, though it uh, is, you know, has some nuances and we'll get into it. It's a great text, Ephesians 2. So what I've wrestled with is uh, this week I've also been mindful of, um, I've had some conversations with folks in this community and I'm mindful of uh, folks I didn't talk to this week, but uh, just struggling with some big things, uh, really big things actually. And, and I'm, I'm struggling with, how, you know, I'm going to talk to you uh, in Ephesians 2 about some great things and it, I'm struggling with how to connect it to where people are living. Um, and in their hard places. Um, And it occurred to me as I wrestled through this all week, actually just occurred to me this morning as I was walking in, uh, that would have been Paul's reality too, actually. Why would we assume that people in Ephesus didn't have problems? Um, You know, maybe there was a guy there called Gaius, and maybe he was just struggling with the weight of, of a job he didn't like or a job that didn't pay enough to meet the goals, or to meet his bills. I I have no idea. Maybe he had a terrible boss. Maybe he was a terrible boss. I don't know. But why would I assume that those people didn't exist in Ephesus? Why why would I assume there, maybe there was a lady there called Lydia. Maybe she'd been struggling for years with, with health complications. And so I don't think Paul's tone deaf in this letter. I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, if if uh, can you put the first the the title slide up, Mark? Just um, what Paul does in Ephesians, and, and we're just going to follow the same thing, is he begins the letter with a focus on theology, uh, new position, new gift, new strength. This chapters one, two, and three that we're the way we're going to unpack that, and it's it's pretty theological. But why would we assume that good thinking about God isn't somehow relevant to good living? <laughs> it, there's a connection. And so Paul is writing to people who might have some of the same challenges we have, and he just wants them to help to think rightly about what God, who God is and what God's about. And then in the next couple chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, new walk, new community, new enemy, he does actually unpack that theology. He lands it and he says, look, this is how this might play out in your household, or this is how it might play out in your workplace, or this is how it might play out in your marriage. And he'll, he'll unpack some of that theology. So just a um, couple things, just a little caveat, just this is going to be somewhat theological, but don't assume that that doesn't matter. Uh, and we will unpack this just as Paul unpacks it. We're trying to stay true to the form of the letter. So, not an apology, confession. 
but I hope you hear these words this morning. Let's dive in to Ephesians, okay? Uh, Ephesians, written perhaps around 60, 62 CE, AD, however you talk about those dates. Um, here's a picture of Ephesus. Um, you can, I mean, this is what it looks like today, the ruins. I've, I've stood there. I, in fact, I took this picture. Yay. Um, this is, it's amazing, actually, to stand in Ephesus. You can stand where Paul would have stood. You can walk through these, these buildings. Um, you can stand in the Colosseum that he addressed the crowd. It's pretty amazing. Uh, and in Ephesians chapter 2, what his concern is, in Ephesians at this time, uh, one of his concerns is the division between Jews the covenant people of God, and Gentiles, the outsiders, the people that weren't the initial recipients of God's promises. So in the Old Testament, God chooses a people group, the Jewish people, and through them, they were to bless all nations. It didn't quite work out that way that uh, you can read about in the Old Testament. But there were these sharp lines between Jews who were insiders and Gentiles who were outsiders. And the whole temple system, to some degree, uh, reflects that. So if you go to, well, we can't go to the temple, but if you were to look at a picture of the Jewish temple, there's the court of the Gentiles, and that's where they can go, the non-Jewish people. But at a given point, there's a wall, and they can't go any further, and only Jewish people can go one step further, and then there's a court of the women, and then they can't go any further, and then there's a, and it's just this highly stratified, divisive, uh, clear divisions, and that's his concern in chapter 2. And what he gets at, um, and a little bit of a spoiler here, but what he gets at in verse 15, or 14, for Jesus himself is our peace who has made these two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose, God's purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So in Paul's time in Ephesians, or in Ephesus, in the early 60s, say, of AD, so some 2,000 years ago, a major issue was this division between ethnic Jews and religious Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. And they were hostile toward each other. They didn't have anything to do with each other. And... And Paul is getting at, oh, hey, God has broken down these walls. But this is Ephesus, right? 2,000 years ago, thereabouts, uh, categories between Jew and Gentile doesn't really, it's probably not your major issue, I'm going to suspect. Um, So let's fast forward a moment. Um, Put up this next picture for a second, Mark. Do you know where this is? Anybody? The date might give a clue. Uh, that is a good guess. Uh, think about world history. Uh, 1994 uh, uh, in April. Uh, Elsie, do you know where this is? Thank you, Elsie. Elsie's been there. She's the only person I know that's been to Rwanda. Uh, Rwanda, right? In 1994 uh, was the location, beautiful place, was the location of the Rwandan genocide. And uh, for years, people had lived together in that nation. There was a tribe of Hutus and a tribe of Tutsis. They were different ethnicities. And they lived side by side as neighbors. Uh, But in April, if 
from 94 and then over um, Mar- uh, April, May, June, kind of over those months, over three months, um, that society segregated into Hutus and Tutsis, and uh, the Hutus uh, killed approximately 800,000 people. Tutsis, former neighbors. Um, that's a division, right? That's hostility. And former neighbors literally turned on each other. Uh, that number is, is incomprehensible to me, so let me put a face to that number. Uh, this is a picture of Jean-Paul Samputu, who is a, um, a Tutsi. Uh, well, he's Rwandan, let's say that right. Um, and I came across his story uh, when I was studying uh, forgiveness uh, through the Forgiveness Project. Um, so he, he fled his village when the fighting broke out, um, and he lost his mom, dad, three brothers, and a sister in the, in the, in the genocide. Um, and he came back some months after, and he wanted to find out particularly what happened to his parents. Who'd killed his parents? And they didn't know about his mom, but what he found out was his dad had literally been killed by his childhood best friend, like Jean-Paul's best friend had killed his dad. So Jean-Paul had grown up with this kid called Vincent. They were really close friends. They played together. They did life together. This division breaks out between Hutu and Tutsi. Jean-Paul flees, Vincent kills Jean-Paul's dad, okay? And the category of neighbor disintegrates. Jean-Paul Samputu is a Christian. He became a Christian, I think, after this event, and his story is one of learning how to forgive his childhood friend, Vincent. Um, and I'm not, this, this didn't divide around sort of Christian, non-Christian lines. It was Hutu and and Tutsi, but I'll guarantee you there are Christians on both sides of that conflict. Same as in Northern Ireland, which that conflict was not about Catholics and Protestants, but interestingly enough, they divided around religious lines and killed each other. Now, in case that all feels still far away, as far away as Ephesus and Jews and Gentiles, let's fast forward to this picture, April 2020. What was happening now? You all lived through it, <laughs> I think. The pandemic, right? Where we all told to stay home, early pandemic, so the streets were empty, a bit like this. Um, and society quickly, like in the early weeks maybe, uh, things were relatively uh, united in terms of how we might approach this, but quickly uh, our society fractured around freedoms and restrictions. And this divided friends, families, and churches. Right? Masks. How, how is it that a mask became what divided people? But it did. Okay? And it divided people like, in, in significant ways. I, my friend, one of my friends up north in Grand Prairie, he's, he figures they've lost over 100 people in their church solely based on the fact they asked them to wear masks. And people just left. Um, and I'm not trying to make distinctions, all I'm trying to do is recognize that what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2 about Jews and Gentiles may not be our exact issue, but it is our exact issue. That's all I'm trying to say. There are divisions in our culture that we bring into the church and they divide us. 
And Paul, I think, would have been appalled by how this played out. Whether it was in the Rwandan genocide, obviously, or in the pandemic responses of some of us, me perhaps, and how these things became divisive. And he would argue, and we'll follow his logic in a moment, he will argue that you're using fundamentally the wrong categories in church. The things that define people and divide them in culture and assign them different levels of status are completely irrelevant in the church. Because Jesus didn't die for those identities. Jesus died to give us a new identity. This is what Caleb talked about last week. We're in Christ. We have a new identity. And so these little divisions about whether you wore a mask or didn't, whether you got a vaccine or didn't, those divisions exist. Paul's not saying they're not there. He's saying they don't matter in the church because you're in Christ. Right? Just like there are Jews and there are Gentiles. There are non-Jews. But what he's getting at in Ephesians 2 is that these categories that separate people and culture in the church, in Christ, don't matter. In Galatians, a different letter that he writes, he writes this, In Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. That's your identity. You are children. You are God's child. And uh, for all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now clearly he's not saying these categories don't exist. There are male and female. There are Jew and Gentile. He's saying these categories don't matter. They no longer define you. Okay, if I were to take a run at this, uh, do kind of the Renus Jansen 2023 translation or something like that, or paraphrase, I might say, um, in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God. If you've all been baptized, you've clothed yourself with Christ, there's neither Hutu nor Tutsi. There's neither masker or anti-masker, vaxxer or anti-vaxxer. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Jesus. Do you hear how that would sound and what Paul's getting at follow just come with me we're going to do a little bit this is our dive into theology you're going to follow the logic of his argument okay there is a logic Paul is a skilled author and his skill is on display so there is a a logic to this you're just going to kind of follow along on this table Uh, you online uh, you no longer get to see me you'll get to see this it's okay Uh, maybe better here here's what you'll see the table okay So this is the first part of Ephesians 2. There's two parts, verses 1 to 10. We'll quickly go through it. Then we'll look at the second part, and you'll see uh, what Paul's doing here. Okay, so the first part um, of chapter 2 of Ephesians. As for you, now the you in this is you plural. This is a problem in the English language. We read the word you and think he's talking to me as an individual. That is never the case in a letter that he's writing to the church, ever. You is always plural in the Greek. So as Tim Mackey would say in the Bible Project, it's y'all. He borrows from the the Texan. So y'all, okay? So I'll try that. It probably won't sound as good for me, but (laughs) not Texan. As for y'all, right? You all were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air 
the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So he's just talking about the, the former predicament. This is who you were. You, you all, were dead in your transgressions. It's a, that's, a, that's a dense phrase, dead in your transgressions. Uh, short version of that, we're just skimming over this, okay? But the short version of that is that somehow the things of death used to be appealing to you. Um, evil is presented as good and we bought the lie, Right? And we've all lived in that space. It's interesting. This is an observation, not a judgment. This is an observation. But we watch movies, most of us. Um, Think about the movies you watch for a moment, and then think about what's going on in those movies. Most movies are about, you know, death or adultery or all kinds of different things going on. Um, It's interesting that those things are what Jesus died for that have now, in our culture, become entertainment. Okay, it's just an observation. All right, and it's, this is what I think Paul's trying to get at in this densely packed phrase, you're dead in your transgressions, is that there are, there are times in our life where what, is actually, what actually leads to death feels appealing. It feels, feels, this is what happened in the garden, right? The tree itself wasn't bad. The fruit wasn't bad. But the snake twists the promises of God and what God says so that what God had said becomes like gets twisted and distorted and it leads to death. So formally, we, he says, you all were in this and then he switches language to we so then he includes the Jews in the story as well. That's the we. We've been blinded. We, we, we formally pursued ways that led to death and then he identifies the agent of death, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is also a densely packed phrase. Um, I'm going to just, again, skim over, not skim over it, but just say in brief uh, a reference to uh, Satan, to the accuser, to one who lies. And remember what Caleb has said in the earlier, in, in the introductory, direct, introductory sermon. There we go. Um, identified the powers. That's one of the major themes in this book is, is the language of powers. And here we have that. There is a power Uh, identified here as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That is the, you know, the snake is the one who deceives, who lies, who causes us to, uh, the things that lead to death seem attractive. He says that's the former predicament, that's the agent of death. But then there's this beautiful turn in verse four. Happens twice in the chapter, verse four is one of them. But God... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. Okay, and what we get here is God's profound intervention. And notice God's intervention is because of his great love and because of his great mercy. And then the new reality is we have been made alive in Christ. That is obviously the contrast, the dead in transgressions, alive in Christ. So if dead in transgressions points to the things of death seem attractive, then alive in Christ points to the things of Jesus feel more exciting. 
who Jesus is, what Jesus is about, the values of the kingdom, unity, justice, goodness, truth, beauty, those things start feeling way more attractive to us than the old ways. Okay, and seats us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Caleb touched on that briefly last week. And then Paul is clear. This is a text that many of you, if you've grown up in church and Sunday school, have memorized. Paul is very clear that it's, this is all a gift. It's by grace. Uh, verse 8 is usually what you've memorized, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Right? So what this former predicament, we've been we're dead, we're, we're pursuing things that lead to death, because of the spirit of the age, this ruler, this power, but God intervenes and brings us alive to Jesus. Okay, and it's all grace. Now we often talk about grace being unconditional, which it is. We don't earn God's gift of grace. We don't earn God's salvation. Unfortunately, the term unconditional sometimes seeps into our being as like, well, I don't have to do anything. And so we don't do anything. And that's not quite what Paul's saying. Um, there is obligation attached to this. All right? It's, we don't earn the gift. The gift is given freely. Uh, we're not saved by our works. He's very clear on this, but we are saved for works. Okay? We're not saved by our works. We're saved to do works as a result of the gift. Right in verse 10, this is, if you ever memorize verse 8, please memorize verse 9 and 10. Okay, so it's not by works so that no one can boast. That's verse 9, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is Genesis 1, all right? This is God creating humanity. You are God's masterpiece in Christ. You've been recreated You've been made alive and created to do good works the same way that Adam and Eve were created to do good works. Okay? He's just repeating that. That's his flow of thought. Now let's add the second part of the, the, the text, verses 11 to 22, and see how it follows the same structure. There's a former predicament. There's an agent of death. There's God's intervention. There's a new reality. Okay? So the... Uh, it's not quite in the same order, but all the components are there. You were once separate from Christ. Okay, you all, you Gentiles, is who he's talking about. Therefore, remember formerly you Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves circumcised. Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God. In the world. Okay, you're just outsiders as Gentiles, as non Jews, you're cast out. Uh, if I just skip down to verse uh, 14, uh, the agent of death here is this wall, this division, this dividing wall. Um, this dividing wall of hostility in verse 14 by setting aside the law and its uh, commands and regulations. This too is um, quite technical and 
And again, I'm just going to give you an overview. You can really dive into this. Because it sounds like what Paul's saying is the law is the problem. Um, and it's actually not quite what he's saying. It's a very nuanced argument. Uh, You've got to do some cross-referencing, in particular Romans 7. So go to Romans 7 and you'll see that Paul is wrestling through this and how he understands the law. And he's saying the law is good, but it actually, for, it doesn't force him, but it, it, it gets co-opted, uh, gets twisted, right? So God's command to not eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil was not a bad command, but it gets twisted by the accuser and it causes Adam and Eve to sin. And that's sort of how Paul understands the law. The law itself is good, but it just, it actually births, like it creates sin. Not because the law is bad, but because it gets corrupted, right? It's a very nuanced argument. And he's saying that actually gets removed. That whole system of, with its commands and regulations gets removed, um, in Christ, right? This is verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His purpose, dropping down to verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, out of Jew and Gentile, making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put their hostility. Okay, so again, this shift. Here's the reality, the form of predicament. Here's the problem, the thing that divided you, separated you. And then again, but now in Christ, Christ intervenes. And he brings these two divided groups, Jew and Gentile, he brings them together and creates a new humanity, making peace. And he ends this little section by saying, through him, we both have access to the, to the, uh, to the Father by the one spirit. Um, Highly Trinitarian there, Jesus, Spirit, Father. Um, he's saying this gets brought together. Jesus brings these diverse groups of people together. Now, Paul is very clear in this text um, that all of this is the result of what God has done. It's all gift. Okay? That is very clear in verses 4 to 8 around being made alive in Christ that is gifted to us by grace and this bringing diverse, formerly uh, hostile people together in Christ. That's what brings them together. It's gifted. In Christ, we've been made new or alive. Through Christ, we've become a new humanity. All right, let me try and land this. Paul tries, well, he does land it. Let me try to land it. Um, and hopefully land it a little closer to where you live. Okay, this is, um, this is what Paul says. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household. So he's going to use two images here. The first one is you become part of the household become part of the family. It's a family image. In Christ, in Christ, we're no longer outsiders. We actually belong somewhere, right? And we all long for that. We all long to belong somewhere. You have friends, uh, I have friends who feel alienated. They feel cut off. They feel lonely. They feel disconnected in the world they live in. 
We long to be connected, and Paul is saying, in Christ, we're brought together in a household, in a family. And the divisions of our culture, and these are divisions in our culture, masks, vaccines, ethnicity, gender, what football club you support, or hockey team, these kind of things cause divisions in culture. They should not cause division in the church, is what Paul's saying. Those categories still exist. But they shouldn't define you because you're in Christ. And Christ has created a new humanity. Um, Waleed, brother. I've asked Waleed to come up. Let me illustrate, okay? Because I've learned this from this man and his family, actually. So this is Waleed. Waleed is, uh, is Kurdish by ethnicity. Um, he is uh, the father of the first family this church sponsored refugees. Um, so he's from Syria. Uh, he's Kurdish. He speaks Kurdish, he speaks Arabic, he speaks English. I speak only one of those languages, uh, you guess. Um, we, we come from very different backgrounds, actually. Very, very different backgrounds. But I have learned from my brother, and he calls me brother. He has since day one, since he landed in, this, in the city. He's referred to me as brother, and it's taken me six years to kind of clue into what he's saying to me. He means brother. You're part of my family. That's what he means, truly. The old categories don't define us at all, right? We live in a culture still, I think, that has some suspicion toward people from the Middle East. And those categories in Christ don't define us. This is my brother. And he, he has said, and I believe him actually, that he'd, he'd do anything for me. And it's just such an honor. And I've learned that even though we're different, in some major ways, none of it matters. Went for a walk the other day, and I'm walking with my brother. And it is such an honor and privilege. Thank you. All right, and this is what Paul is trying to get at in this text, is that these divisions, don't, they don't define. There's something else important going on that's, that's actually, that really matters. And look where he takes it next. He switches analogy and he starts talking about a building. So you're a household, but he says you're also then built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the image now shifts from household or family to building or temple. And this image too needs a little bit of help because we aren't super familiar with temples. But temples in the ancient world, in Paul's world, were places where heaven and earth uh, intersected. They met. And people would go to a temple and expect to meet God. That's why they'd go to the temple. That's why Jews journeyed to Jerusalem, to go to the temple. That's why temples were built in in other places, including Ephesus, uh, the temple of Diana. Um, was built there. And people go, it's it's an intersection between heaven and earth. It's the thin space where... where, um, People go to meet God or expect to meet God. It's a place where God dwells. 
And Paul here in this text says, you, you all, y'all are that temple. It's stunning, actually, what he's saying. We, as we live in community with one another, as we do life together, despite our differences, in fact, maybe because of our differences, you in Christ are the temple, the place where God lives, the place where people outside can go and encounter God. Right here. And again, not here building, here in terms of our community. That somehow, this, it, it gets better. It just, it blows my mind. Chapter 3 is where he takes this. Chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, it'll be up on the screen here. God's intent, okay, this is his intent, was that now through the church, through the church, this community that has been made alive in Jesus, this community that has been brought together despite its differences, through that church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm, to the powers. We are saying God is doing something according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You thought you were coming to church this morning. That is just such a small view of what's actually going on, according to Paul. You are being invited into this place, uh, into this space, but more accurately into this community. Um, the gifts that God gives, the new gifts that we're talking about, is that in Christ you've been made alive. And the things of Jesus are beginning to percolate and they're beginning to like, like be more attractive and animate and shape your living right where you live, with your health struggles and with your financial struggles and the, and the world with all of its pressures, you are being made alive in Christ, animated by Jesus. And we're part of a community that the differences uh, sort of begin to fade. They certainly don't define. And to a world that is increasingly fractured, I would say, we declare something different. This is why it becomes so important that we gather to worship. Because there's people in this room, I'll guarantee you there's people in this room that voted differently than me in the last election. And they'll vote different than me in the next election. And they have different opinions about what's going on in Ottawa, what's going on in Edmonton, and what's going on in Calgary City Hall than I do. And it's okay. Because in Christ, those divisions, those differences don't define us. That's, I, th- I think, is stunning. And it may not exactly speak to where you live, but it's really important we get a sense of this. And again, in the same way that uh, the invitation in chapter 1, um, Caleb's illustration of the yeast kind of working its way into a batch of dough, and it just needs to be kneaded um, and worked in, I invite you to do the same kind of thing with chapter 2. Just sit with this. These are two profound gifts given by Jesus. We're made alive in Jesus. We're brought together as a united community. Jesus actually prays to this end in John chapter 17. You might remember it. And he prays for, he says, I pray for all of those who come after. In other words, he's praying for us 
And it's really interesting what he prays for us. He prays for unity. He says, I pray that they will be one. John 17. I pray that they'll be one so that the world will know that you have sent me. That's the invitation, the receiving of these gifts. Alive in Christ, one in each other, uh, with each other. Profound witness to a divided and shattered world. I'm going to pause. We're going to actually shift, and there is no better practice in the church than communion to bring these two together. Communion is a practice where we talk about being alive with Jesus. We've been made alive with Jesus. That's a part of the communion story. And it, we're all equals at this table. We're together in Christ. So I'm going to invite Andrea up to sort of, she'll be at the closer here. Um, as we move from this theology into this practice. Thank you. All right. Take a moment. That was a lot, actually, to rest in. Um, I don't know if you've been, Renus asked us to read through Ephesians 1 through the week and soak in that a little bit. I hope that you had the opportunity to do that because that is part of coming to this table today. And as Rena said in Ephesians, we are reminded that we are loved and saved by God through grace and that this saving grace has been offered equally to all people, that he has given us a new identity and that he has destroyed all barriers. Um, and Renus mentioned that that was going to be a theologically packed sermon. Um, and so it is great to be able to come, actually, to the communion table. Um, this practice that Christ himself left us. So he left us with this practice of hope, I believe. So we come to this communion table to remember what Christ has done through his sacrifice. We act in unity. He gave this as an activity to do together. So we act in unity to proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection and proclaim him as that cornerstone, the cornerstone to the new creation. So I invite you, this is a table of invitation, to come to the table of Jesus, our Redeemer. Christ invites you here as part of the people of God. Come to the table humbly, not because you earned this, but because you need God's mercy and help. Come because you love God and want to love him more. Come because Jesus first loved us and gave himself for us. Come because you want to experience the mystery of God's grace. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took this bread and gave thanks for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. So before we partake in communion, let us pray. God, we thank you for this table, for the opportunity to be reminded of your love that pursues us our whole life long. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life that through your broken body and your shed blood that we are each given the gift of salvation and of life. Come, Holy Spirit, fill us with your love. Fill us so that we might love God more, that we would be the body of Christ to one another and to the world around us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources to help further your study throughout the week, you can go to vbchurch.ca forward slash sermons.